you know, the, the Bible calls on people to make disciples of all nations. And I tell people that really begins in the home. Education is about discipling. There are two inherently contradictory views when it comes to education and discipling. One is God-centered. One is centered on the truths in the Bible that have withstood the test of time, that are demonstrably true, that produce incredible fruit like civilization, like rule of law, like individual liberty, like prosperity, like peace. Uh, and the other is rooted in ideas that have everywhere produced death and misery and chaos. Hi, you're listening to the Zantaler Podcast. When my family started our homeschooling journey, there were so many decisions to make. But one of our best decisions was choosing to use BJU Press Homeschool. I've never seen my kids so excited to get textbooks before. I'm amazed by how interesting and interactive the lessons are. My kids actually look forward to them. We use the online video lessons for all our courses, but I know some families choose to teach from the textbooks. What I love is that I can trust BJU Press to uphold our values. The Bible and biblical principles are woven throughout each subject. I'll admit, I was a bit nervous when I started homeschooling, but I've found a wonderful online community of other BJU Press homeschool families and consultants. The Homeschool Hub also makes my job easier. I can set up our schedules and rearrange them with just a few clicks. On the dashboard, I can see each of my kids' progress, and the assignments page shows me quickly what's ready for me to check or grade. I'm glad my son's biology assignments are automatically graded. BJU Press Homeschool has given us the tools and confidence to homeschool our children. For more information, do what I did and visit the BJU Press Homeschool website or talk with your local HomeWorks consultant. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Zan Tyler podcast. Let me take just a minute to ask you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. And if this podcast has been encouraging to you, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us. We're available on YouTube now, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I have an amazing guest on the podcast today. I recently met Alex Newman and heard him speak at the Florida Homeschooling Convention. He is the homeschool father of five. Over his career as a journalist, Alex has interviewed current and former heads of state, members of Congress, royalty, and countless other fascinating people. His work has been received, uh, his work, which has received numerous awards, has been repeatedly highlighted by Drudge, Breibart, Fox News, CNN, The Washington Post, and many other outlets. His writing has been published in major newspapers across America, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Reuters, and the Associated Press. So welcome, Alex. I am so excited to have you here on the podcast. Uh, it was just such a blessing to hear you speak at FPEA. For those of you who don't know, it's the Florida Homeschool Convention, and there were about 18,000 people there. So it was quite an amazing place to be. So I heard Alex speak for the first time, and I've just finished his re reading his book, The Crimes of the Educators. So I think you're in for a real blessing today hearing from Alex. So welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here, Zan, and I so appreciate all the work that you have done over all these years to, to protect homeschooling, to promote homeschooling. It's truly been a real blessing to so many of us newer homeschoolers that are you know coming into the movement over the last few years. So You know, it has been my privilege, and I, I think it was Heidi or somebody at the conference says, when God says, go, you go. <laughs> Amen. 
And, um, but, you know, it was interesting when I heard you speak and then reading your book a little bit, you talked about you were living in Sweden at the time and you, they were dealing with the criminalization of homeschooling parents. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and how you were first introduced to homeschooling? Yeah, it was unbelievably disturbing what I witnessed. And and I don't share these things to scare homeschoolers or to, to try to, you know, keep you up at night. But I, I do think it's important that we understand that there are totalitarians who, if they could, would absolutely come after us and destroy our families and force us to send our children to schools that uh, we choose not to use. And and I know that because I witnessed it firsthand. So I, I was living in Sweden, not on purpose. Um, you know, I've been overseas almost all my life. I ended up marrying a, a Swedish girl. And so that's how I ended up in Sweden. I, you know, it wouldn't have been a country high on my list of places to go. But it was, um, you know, by default, it was a lot easier for me to go there than for her to come anywhere else. So I went there and um, we were just waiting for our first son. Um, this was, I think, uh, 2010. And I got I got contacted by the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. I, I was a journalist at the time, uh, recently uh, got together with my wife. And uh, they told me that there was this horrific story about a, a young boy. His name was Dominic Johansson, who had been kidnapped from his parents by the authorities. And the primary reason was actually homeschooling. That was the main reason they listed when they, they removed this child from his parents. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about homeschooling at the time. In fact, our, our firstborn son wasn't even born yet. And so this was kind of all new to me. I ended up connecting also with uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the ADF. They got involved in this case. And um, this was right around the time that the government of Sweden was banning home education. And so they're they're threatening homeschooling families. And there wasn't a lot of them in Sweden. Homeschooling was not a big movement in Sweden, maybe a few hundred families at most. Um, and, and this constant threat was hanging over their head that government agents were going to break in their door and, and haul their children away forever. And so as I started writing stories about this, I started getting to know these people. Um, and, you know, to, to say that it was heartbreaking would really be an understatement. You know, mm -hmm. seeing the terror in the eye, any parent knows, you know, there, there's nothing more terrifying than something bad happening to your child. And so to see the terror in the eyes of these homeschooling families uh, was just heartbreaking. And so the government ended up criminalizing homeschooling. They, they became the first government uh, that I know of since Adolf Hitler to make it a crime to home educate your own parents with, with the constant threat that you wouldn't just go to jail, but that your children would be taken from you. And, um, you know, and then what I witnessed then, Zan, was truly incredible because, uh, you know, you, you think, well, in that kind of a situation, people just collapse, people just comply. No, that's not what happened. Um, the, the families that were homeschooling, not one of them that I know of decided to send their children to public school. Uh, either they left the country or they went underground. And so they did uh, uh, kind of the final step. They, they did this big, uh, they called it a walk to freedom. And they walked through downtown Stockholm, a few hundred of these homeschoolers with signs. And they went first to the education ministry. They handed in their protest. The education minister consistently refused to meet with them. He was actually the, the cheerleader of the bill in parliament that criminalized homeschooling. And so they marched down to the port. They got on a ship and they sailed off to Finland. Uh, hundreds of homeschoolers. Uh, they went mm -hmm. to this island in the Baltic Sea called uh, Orland, where they speak Swedish, but it's under Finnish jurisdiction. And of course, in Finland, uh, homeschooling is allowed. And so despite the adversity, despite the terror, um, all of these families uh, did the right thing and they they left or they went underground and they continued homeschooling.
Boy, Alex, that is an amazing story. And you know, you would like to think that those kinds of things don't happen today. And, and I have so many parents tell me, oh, well, there's so many millions of homeschoolers now. There's no way we have to be worried about homeschooling freedom anymore. But after what you've seen in Sweden, what I experienced in 1984 with being threatened with jail by the state superintendent of education in conservative South Carolina, uh, it, it, it's always a reminder that we cannot take freedom for granted. And so uh, we were talking uh, yesterday, report came out, was this one from Harvard or what came out yesterday in the news that was anti-homeschooling? Well, uh, the Washington Post, I, I call it the Washington Compost. That's it's a total joke of a newspaper. <laughs> but, um, but they had this big hit piece, right? You've had millions of families have left the public school system in the last few years uh, for, for greener pastures, homeschooling and Christian schools. Not a peep out of the Washington Post. But then they found one couple that have been homeschooled and decided to send their, their child to a public school. And suddenly this is worthy of a giant expose and investigation. And if you read the article, it, it never explicitly comes out and says it, but it, it tries to create this really negative impression of homeschooling that we're all just Christian fanatics brainwashing our children and isolating them from the world and, uh, you know, beating them mercilessly. I mean, that's the impression that the Washington Post tried to give with this article. And uh, unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of that. There is a concerted effort right now. You mentioned Harvard. Of course, we have Elizabeth Bartholet, uh, the Child Advocacy Project at Harvard Law School, now calling for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. So the, the forces of totalitarianism, the forces of uh, collectivizing children are marshalling. They're, they're gathering for war. And the homeschool movement, unfortunately, in America is, as, as you pointed out, we're, we're just kind of Pollyanna-ish about this. Well, you know, there's millions of us. What are they going to do? Folks, they are getting ready to come after us. And these articles that we're starting to see, you know, they're calling homeschoolers a Nazis and uh, white supremacists and, and, and uh, you know, saying that we reject science. I mean, they're putting this out there for a reason. They're preparing the public to to wage all out war on the homeschooling community. And we need to be ready. Well, you're absolutely right about that. One thing I would like for you to define for us, Alex, because I know we take this for granted. I just finished a couple of years ago, the Colson Fellows Worldview Program. And I, I don't think we have an understanding of totalitarianism and utopianism in this country. We hear utopia and we just think Disney World or something where it's a world where everything is nice and free. So would you define those terms for us so that people will know we're we're talking about real, real governments, real people in the real world? Yeah, so totalitarianism is a, a system of government where government really usurps all decision-making authority from the individual. You know, if you, if you read the Bible, God is clearly the author of individual human liberty. In fact, it says this explicitly, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And yes, that's in a spiritual sense, but it's also in a very real sense, uh, in that's a right. personal sense, economic liberty, a parental freedom. God has given us liberty in a lot of areas, and he's given us a wide range of decisions that are acceptable to him. Uh, and if you read the Bible, if you read the scriptures, you, you read certain fundamental truths about mankind, right? For example, in Jeremiah, we read that the heart is desperately wicked. Um, and and as, as Bodhi Balcom says, you know, if you have kids, you know this, right? They're, they're so selfish that all they think about is themselves. You, you don't have to teach them to lie and cheat and steal. I mean, they, they're born knowing how to do all those things. What you do have to teach them is how to behave themselves, how to control their appetites, how to think and care about other people. Um, and so utopians reject 
these kind of fundamental truths that God reveals about us. And that actually we can discern just from the creation. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to understand that man is innately depraved. Um, and so utopians reject these these biblical truths. And they say they start from the starting point that mankind is essentially good. And the reason that things aren't working out as, as they probably should be considering that we're good is that, well, there's this Christianity. Well, there's, you know, parents influence. Uh, and so they, they get this idea in their heads that, well, if I could just run everything, if I could mold the minds of all the children in a government school system, for lack of a better term, if I could just shape all the government policies and determine what everybody should be doing, then we would live in this utopia. Then everything would be great. We wouldn't have crime. We wouldn't have poverty. We wouldn't have. Uh, and of course, these things are all fundamentally untrue, right? Uh, Jesus told us poverty is going to be with us uh, until he returns, right? Uh, so, so these are things that the Bible teaches on clearly. But when you reject the Bible, it becomes very easy to fall into the traps of these dangerous ideologies, whether it be Nazism or communism or fascism. It's very easy when you reject uh, the basic truths that God has revealed to us through creation and through his word to fall into the trap of becoming a utopian, to fall into the trap of becoming a totalitarian, where you think, well, I am far smarter than all these other dumb people. If you just put me in charge, if you just let me tell everybody what they should be doing, when they should be doing it, what the children should be learning at school, then everything would work out perfectly. And, uh, you know, over the last hundred years, we've had plenty of experience. Now we know how this movie ends. It always ends the same way. Uh, you know, mass death, gulags, starvation, concentration camps, torture. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter who in particular is the one running the system. It always ends the same way because, again, you're rejecting certain truths that God has revealed to us, certain moral principles that God has revealed to us. And so kind of to summarize, totalitarianism is the absence of individual liberty, the usurpation of all decision making power by some sort of centralized authority. And utopianism is this idea that through the right mixture of government policy and government education, we can create this kind of perfect society where everything will work well and all of these social ills will disappear. And we need to make no mistake. People will argue over the question about, is, was America exceptional? Is there exceptionalism in America? To me, the thing that is exceptional is that our founding fathers acknowledged God and they acknowledged his word in the, in the, place of found the, being the foundation of education. Um, Harvard's rules and precepts talked about laying Christ as the foundation of all um, sound learning and knowledge. And these are, and I've heard you talk about the fact that colleges, most 90% of our colleges were founded by people who wanted to propagate the gospel. And so People don't realize that public education in its godless form is the new kid on the block. So one thing I want to ask you about in your book, so excuse this really long introduction to this question, but this is so important to me, Alex, is what a difference one person can make. And I often wondered until I just happened upon the writings of Noah Webster, how we remained a Christian nation through the mid 1850s. And by Christian nation, I don't mean everybody was a believer. I don't mean that. But as a society, we acknowledged God. We acknowledged his word in education. So I come across Dan uh, Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary, which is amazing. I can let you speak to that later. But the one thing I learned is that after the Revolutionary War, Noah Webster couldn't make a living as an attorney. Nobody had money after the war. Very few people did. So he started writing curriculum and he wrote curriculum in all areas. I mean, 
economics, geography, spelling, language arts, uh, politics, government, that had a biblical basis and supported the foundations of liberty found in the Constitution. And, and I thought, I mean, I don't know what I thought, but when I read that he sold a hundred million copies or a hundred million copies were sold of his curriculum in the hundred years from the time he wrote it until after his death, it amazed me. We had basically Christian curriculum in this country. And then right as as he dies, Horace Mann comes on the scene with his anti-God, anti-biblical curriculum. And then we see what happened in the United States from there, you know, until the Supreme Court. One person, Noah Webster, made such a difference. Horace Mann made such a difference. And we can stand for Christ in our education. And it's so important that we do. So if you'll tell us a little bit about Horace Mann and John Dewey, um, the appendix in your book about John Dewey, uh, just if you'll just take a few minutes and educate us about yeah, what well, they believed you. about education. Yeah, th- thank you for the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, there, There's kind of this unspoken understanding among Americans that public education just is and always has been. It's just kind of as American as apple pie. And what people don't realize is that this is really a modern innovation. In fact, uh, the the institutionalized government school system as it it exists today um, is, is really a product of the last century. Now, the roots go back a little further. Uh, I typically start with Robert Owen, uh, who, who kind of, you know, aside from Plato, you know, talking about philosopher kings and how the government should take children and prepare them for their station in life. Um, you know, Robert Owen was really the guy who laid the intellectual, the, the philosophical foundation for the idea that government should be involved in our schools. Now, s- some people point to the pilgrims and, and kind of the old deluder Satan act. They, they asked towns to please set up uh, kind of little schools that would teach kids to read. But I, I consider that an entirely separate movement. In fact, I, I don't even view that as part of the history of what we have today. It, this was a Bible colony. Church and state were essentially one. And uh, they wanted to make sure kids could read the Bible. And so they, they just needed to make sure kids could read. Uh, what happened later with Robert Owen. Uh, now, this was a utopian in the truest sense of the term. He believed that mankind was innately good, that the problem was Christianity. He rejected. So, right, so what about what year was this? Was this the 1800s? When was he around? Yeah. So, so Robert Owen was a, a Welsh industrialist and, and he had been born in the late 1700s. And then in, in the early 1800s, he started writing these essays where he kind of outlined his views on how to create a perfect society, how to create a better managed government, because government education at that time was, was revolutionary. It, it, it just wasn't happening. Nobody thought, Hey, I should let the government educate my kids. That was primarily a function of the parents of the family, you know, sometimes grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, older siblings. You know, James Madison helped educate a lot of his younger siblings. Um, And then to the extent that families needed assistance, they would turn to the church. They would turn to private tutors. They would turn to uh, private academies that were all over the United States. They didn't turn to government. That was a a new thing. And so in 1813 is when Robert Owen writes his first major essay on this idea outlining the, the government involvement in education in the education of children. And he actually says that the best government will be the one that has the best system of government education so that the minds of these children can be shaped in the way that he thought they should. Now, you know, to his credit, uh, this man was obviously a true believer. Um, He spent part of his fortune uh, setting up a commune in Indiana called New Harmony, where they wanted to get rid of private property. They they wanted to basically overturn God's moral order. And Karl Marx would kind of articulate this uh, some decades later in the Communist Manifesto. So this is even before Karl Marx. And obviously the commune failed. 
Uh, because when you get rid of these uh, divinely ordained institutions like private property, like family, you know, things don't work out well, as we've seen very clearly over the last hundred years. And so he, he came up with this idea that the reason his commune failed, the reason his ideas weren't taking root was because of the influence of Christianity. And he understood, just like Karl Marx did, that this was being transmitted down through the family, through the churches. And so he wanted the state to come in and usurp the role of the parents and the churches in the education and the upbringing of children. And again, this wasn't a popular idea at the time. This was a very radical idea. And so we know from uh, an individual called Orisus Brownson. Uh, he was one of uh, Robert Owen's associates. They set up uh, what Orisus Brownson later described when he blew the whistle on this as a secret society modeled on the Carbonari. It's a fascinating story. And I recommend that people check out uh, what Orisus Brownson had to say. But uh, he explains that they were organizing parts of the country and their two immediate goals were shifting public opinion. They wanted people to embrace the idea of government education and they wanted to get men elected to the legislatures who would support the idea of a government role for education. And he actually said, Orisus Brownson, the whistleblower, said that the great object, the ultimate objective in his words, was to get rid of Christianity. Uh, he said ultimately they wanted a national system of government education where to the extent that religion was mentioned, it would be ridiculed, it would be mocked, it would be uh, denigrated in the eyes of pupils because, again, Robert Owen clearly and very openly rejected the Bible, rejected religion. And so, you know, this didn't take off for, for decades. Uh, uh, Orison Brownson said he was organizing part of New York for this society. And so, you know, by nature, secret societies are very difficult to track. We don't know exactly where their influence was felt. But what we do know is that uh, some decades after that, Horace Mann comes along. Um, well, I, I skipped a step here. So uh, one of the things that uh, Robert Owen says in his autobiography is that these essays he wrote were picked up by the Prussian ambassador and were taken over to the Prussian dictator. And according to Robert Owen, the Prussian dictator so much approved, is the terms he uses, of these ideas that he ordered his interior minister to set up a government system system of education of the state by the state for the state. The first time in, in human history that we can find this kind of system. So Horace Mann comes along, uh, another person who rejected Christianity. He was kind of closely affiliated with the Unitarians, the Utopians. Uh, he believed that if we just kind of mold children properly with government schools, we'll, we'll save the day. And uh, he imports this system from Prussia. He eventually actually goes to Prussia to study the system and, and talks about how wonderful it was. But he imports the system from Prussia into Massachusetts. He gets himself selected. Uh, he was a legislator in Massachusetts. And he gets himself selected as the first ever secretary of education of any state. Right? We had never had a secretary of education for any mm -hmm. state. So he brings in these Prussian ideas that ultimately had their roots in Robert Owen's writings. And uh, right away, the disaster starts. Right, the, the quackery comes rushing in. You know, the whole word method. That's the first time it's really institutionalized anywhere outside of you know schools for for deaf and and mute children. Uh, so right, uh, phrenology comes in. Also, this kooky idea that you measure people's skulls to determine their their personality and their attributes and and uh, abilities. And um, the secularism starts right now. When Robert, uh, when Horace Mann said we should get the Bible out of the schools, that that did not take off. I mean, that was the primary textbook that was used by virtually every American in their education. The idea of getting that out was preposterous. But he laid the and, foundation. You know, we don't. You know, we don't know that as a country that once upon a time, and it's not a fairy tale, the Bible really was foundational to education in this country by That's almost right. everyone. That's right. It was your history me. book. It was your, your theology book. It was your science book. And uh, and yet you go back and you look at the, the level of education of these early Americans and you're just astounded. Right. You read the letters that they would write to each other. I mean, it, PhDs don't write like that today. It's, it's truly amazing. 
Um, but so, so you have Horace Mann. He sets up the system in Massachusetts. Total disaster. And uh, when he's done messing up Massachusetts, he starts traveling the country, going to, to preach at legislatures about how salvation will come through government education. And every state needs to set up this government school system. And uh, we should make it compulsory. Right. So by the 1850s, you start getting laws that are kind of trying to require parents, not like today, right? It's maybe like, well, you need to send them for, for a couple months when they're not harvesting crops or whatever. So it's, it wasn't like mm-hmm. what we had today, but they start implementing these compulsory laws. And then John Dewey comes along and picks up the reins uh, of the architecture that Horace Mann had laid down. Now, John Dewey uh, is another one. We know a lot about what he believed. He wasn't shy about expressing his beliefs. He wrote dozens of essays, huge numbers of books. Um, he went to the Soviet Union. If you want to v- read about his views on communism and the, and the first real communist system, uh, you can go read his articles that he published in the New Republic about his trip to the Soviet Union. And you almost wonder, like, how could this happen? How could this guy come back with these glowing reports of a mass murdering totalitarian system that was in the process of destroying the Christian church, that was slaughtering uh, uh, pastors and priests and religious leaders? You know, how could somebody be so deluded to come back with these ideas? But he loved it. And he especially loved their their public school system. He, he celebrated that it was instilling a collectivistic uh, mentality in the children. Uh, and then a few decades after that, he starts uh, with with about 30 other individuals. He puts down on paper his religious views. Uh, it's called the, the Humanist Manifesto. Uh, and this is a document that you can read today. You can look it up today. They call it the Humanist Manifesto one because there's been uh, new iterations of it. But you can read the thing that John Dewey helped write, the thing that John Dewey and his buddies signed. Uh, and you'll see very clearly their religion. Um, you know, the, the first tenant of their religion was that the universe is self-existing and not created, whereas the first tenant of the true religion is that in the beginning, God created. So right at the beginning, they're telling you we reject the Bible, we reject the creator, and we embrace this, this alternative view. So that's kind of the history of the government school system in a nutshell. Um, and, and it took a long time, right? One of the things that John Dewey said in an essay that we reprinted in the appendix to the uh, Crimes of the Educators, uh, it, it's, it's called the Primary Education Fetish. It's this bizarre essay where he, he emphasizes that this idea of teaching little kids how to read, right? Uh, that's, that's not really necessary. We shouldn't be focusing on that. We should be focusing on giving them the right attitudes, values, uh, kind of turning them into little collectivists. Uh, but he does say in there, you know, change must come gradually. If we come out and do this too quickly, uh, uh, parents will and teachers will revolt. He says there will be a violent reaction. Uh, and he was absolutely right. If parents, <laughs> teachers, and taxpayers had understood what this man was up to, there would have been a very violent reaction. There, there would have been just an absolute uproar. But that's the history right there. And you know, it wasn't until the 1960s when the Supreme Court kind of formalized what had already taken place. They banned the Bible. They banned prayer. Um, and you know, the rest is history. We see the fruit now, and our society is collapsing. That's right. And, you know, for those of you out there who have never been exposed to this history, you're thinking this is radical. This is fanatic Christianity. It's not. This is just history. Our country was founded on Christian Christian principles. Our founding documents, the Declaration and the Constitution, all based on biblical principles. Our first textbooks through the 1850s were based on Christian, not if not based on the Bible, on Christian curriculum by the, by people like Noah Webster. And the, the thing that people are after is our faith in God, basically. And, and we all know, I know 
I know Christian friends who are teachers in the public school and their heart is in the right place and they want to see kids prosper, but they are by and large in a system where they can't share the gospel and they can't share the word of God during school hours. And so we're not saying every, we're just saying you need to think about where your kids are going to school and how can you impact them educationally and spiritually at the same time. Um, one thing, Alex, I just want to point out is Joe and I went to Russia in 2018 to speak at the uh, at the Global Home Education Conference in Russia. And it was a thousand families in Moscow and a thousand pa parent families in St. Petersburg. It was really amazing. And uh, one of the one of the priests, Father Dimitri, got up and spoke, and he said, I've witnessed communism. I know what the scourge did to Russia. It killed, you know, millions of people who were Christians or academicians who would not sign the communist agreement. They they burned thousands of churches and 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 just ruined the Russian culture. And he said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life, which was not long, advocating for homeschooling because it builds strong families. Strong families big, build strong churches and strong churches build build strong cultures. So after that, I started reading some um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn because I was interested in what had happened in Russia, and I never really studied it in an understandable way in school or college. And one of the things that he said, he heard the elders when he was a little boy talking about everything that went wrong with Russia because as a country and as a culture, they had forgotten God. And then when he won the Templeton Award for Religion, 50 years later, he had been in gulags and imprisoned and tortured for his faith. And somebody said, after all these years of writing and the things you've experienced, what would you say about the Russian culture now? He would say, we had what happened to us is because we had forgotten God. So as a culture, I think it's a call to us to remember God in our education, remember God in the way we live our lives and being willing to stand in this culture that really wants to see our faith annihilated in many, many ways. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Dan. And, um, you know, the, the Bible calls on people to make disciples of all nations. And I tell people that really begins in the home. Education is about discipling. Um, and there are two inherently contradictory views when it comes to education and discipling. One is God-centered. One is centered on the truths in the Bible that have withstood the test of time, that are demonstrably true, that produce incredible fruit like civilization, like rule of law, like individual liberty, like prosperity, like peace. Uh, and the other is rooted in ideas that have everywhere produced death and misery and chaos. Like the Soviet Union is a very good example. When the state thinks it knows better than parents how children should be educated, when the state thinks it knows better than uh, individuals how economic resources should be allocated, where you should be working, uh, it always produces tragedy. And so there is a conflict here. And it, it's not that we want to be in a conflict. It's just a fact. There is a conflict. There's two entirely different views, attitudes, approaches to educating children. Uh, the one that produced our nation was solidly grounded in the Bible. The one that produced the atrocities that we saw in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany and in Chairman Mao's China and in Cuba and in Cambodia under the leadership of Pol Pot, who slaughtered basically half of his countrymen. Uh, it was always one that was hostile to the principles in the in the Bible. And 
you know, the principles are so basic, right? God created us in his image. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. These seem like very basic principles, but they're at the core of what it means to provide a Christian education. And the alternative to that in education without those values and without any transcendent truth, uh, it is an absolute atrocity. And it always will be. Um, you know, I, I went to the uh, the first global home education conference in Berlin. I believe it was in um, in 2012. And we and, you know, even Germany, after the, the Nazis fell, they had a period of denazification where, you know, the, these people, the, the Nazi laws were removed from the books, the people had to be explained, you know, Nazism was bad, it's not acceptable, you know, you, you, you can't be killing your neighbors, things like this. Um, and, and one of the laws that remained on the books was the homeschool ban. And to this day, when, when we were at the Global Home Education Conference in Berlin, you had all these families that were living under absolute terror because they just wanted to educate their own children in the way that God had called them to. Uh, you know, there, there was one family, uh, the, uh, uh, I think it was the, the Wunderlich family. Um, they, the social services had come in and stolen their children because they wouldn't hand them over to a public education system. So uh, we have to recognize that there's a real conflict going on here. And, um, you know, we as parents have an obligation to choose the correct path. I hope episode one of this two-part series has been thought-provoking and riveting as Alex and I have talked about the history of education and in many senses, the history of freedom in the United States. Make sure you join us for part two, where we talk about the book Alex wrote with homeschool advocate, Dr. Samuel Blumenfeld. As always, you can learn more at zantyler.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Until next time, see you later.